This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, let's do our Friday check-in with Dr. Ian Lesbader, clinical associate professor of medicine over at NYU's Langone Medical Center, joining us as he does on the phone from New York City. So, you know, it's interesting, Ian, because I feel like every day, maybe not quite as much as you, but every day... Carol and I individually and together are having conversations with people about the virus, how it's playing through society, how it's playing through schools, work from home, work from the office, all of those things, progress with vaccines. We look to you to separate the signal from the noise, as they say. What's the most important thing you heard this week when it comes to the virus? Hi, guys. Happy Friday. Shana Tava to uh, some of our listeners and uh, hopefully... All, all is well with uh, with you folks. No, no monkeys here. No, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. Isn't that, we'll is look that just the office? Maybe there are a few. Uh, yeah. Is that crazy? Come on, we hear about traffic stuff. You know, Ian. Don't, I don't think I've ever heard that. Don't try this at home. It's only yeah. for professionals. I agree. <laughs> so, um, you know, always interesting news on uh, on COVID, and um, I think the most interesting story that that I heard this week was about. Um, some airlines testing yeah. uh, point of care, which is a saliva test. And I today just had uh, a patient from uh, one of our universities, and they're all, all the professors and, and many of the students are getting these saliva tests before returning to class, which makes a lot of sense. And what the airlines are doing, or some of them, is testing um, the travelers uh, before they get on at these point of care uh, 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 departures tests, you know, that come back in in a few minutes, and I think that's very reassuring to other travelers that uh, everyone is negative before they get on board for a nine or ten or eleven hour flight, and it's similar to what we do at the hospital before procedures, surgeries, pulmonary function tests, stress tests. We do something more invasive, the nasal swab, but and that turns around in 24 hours. So I think what we're trying to do is to reassure people that the other people they're with are safe, and I think that that's an interesting development. Why are we all? Why aren't they just using saliva tests all the time? It sounds like if they're it's easier, it's quicker. Is it as um, you know? Um, it's fairly accurate. Accurate, the sensitivity thank you. <laughs> and specificity is fairly accurate. Um, and I think as data, you know, comes through, it's, it's looking similar uh, to the nasal swabs, the PCR tests. They're, they're different tests. One is an antigen test. The other um, is a polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, that amplifies the amount. Now, there can be false positives and false negatives. We certainly can see some people who've had COVID who've recovered, and when you do their nasal swab, their PCR test is positive. It's not active virus, but the, the RNA is still there. 
and magnified. So sometimes you can get, uh, you know, data that's really not helpful. But this point of care or the antigen or saliva test, I agree with you, should really be done more widespread. And I think that would reassure people. We're seeing that in schools and colleges. Yeah. Many of the kids now are getting a once or twice a week even uh, saliva test. And this way you can identify uh, an early case and kind of isolate that group or that floor. I mean, could we have a setup in, you know, we're basically like before Jason and I went to work, like you just quick did that. And then once it's okay, you can go into the office. I mean, do we have enough of those tests? Can we, can we operate like that? I think that would be the goal. And, okay. and I think uh, we need to sort of uh, step away from, you know, sort of the, you know, political or demonstrations and cops and all of that and focus some resources on getting a lot of those point-of-care tests, because I think many offices and businesses can really reopen and schools can more comfortably reopen if we do that on a periodic basis. Uh, You know, obviously there's some cost involved, but I think if we can ramp that up, people would, until the vaccine arrives, and we do think that's probably January, February, and, you know, again, that's going to be staged. We can talk about that. But I think until that comes around, these point-of-care tests make sense, and I'm glad the airlines are doing that. And certainly me getting on a plane, I'm happy to do it, and I'd feel happier if everyone on board is also negative. Agree. Yeah, yeah, agree with that for sure. I mean, I do wonder, Ian, you know, as we think about going back to school and what we've learned so far from both the colleges and from the secondary schools, it's uneven when it comes to learning. Let's set that aside for a second. But as you've monitored the various sort of outbreaks in college towns and and things like that, what do you take away from that? Well, we do have some data that um, there's an, a, a big increase in COVID in young people in, in their 20s. Um, and really, the demographics uh, in Europe and elsewhere have, have shifted mm-hmm. from the sick people and more people at an older age to now a bigger reservoir in younger people, uh, probably due to you know less social distancing and masks and socializing and that sort of thing. You know, the good news for them is that uh, they really do tend to do a lot better. There are really very few young children um, who have been severely affected by this. Of the 200,000, you know, dead, we're, we're talking, you know, uh, perhaps a, a hundred kids uh, affected. So it, it seems to be much better tolerated. Unfortunately, they have fewer symptoms and can infect older people who are more vulnerable. That's the rationale for more testing of this sort of point of care testing, where where you don't have to sit down and have a nurse stick a swab down your, uh, in your nose. So Dr. Lospader, let me ask you about, it is truly our most read story on the Bloomberg in the past eight hours. This is what folks have been reading. And it talks about um, the loss of an immune function for some uh, COVID-19 patients. And they're talking about the lack of a, of a substance called interferon that apparently, I guess, helps orchestrate the body's defense against viral pathogens. So talk to me a little bit about this. Like, how significant is this and what might this mean in terms of treating patients that come down with the virus? You know, I think it has potentially uh, a very positive news. You know, interferons are a, a normal uh, mammal cell response to uh, infections, typically viral infections. 
And we've known about it for decades, and, and we've used interference for a variety of diseases, including hepatitis B and hepatitis C. We have much more effective antivirals, and interferons are used for a variety of other kinds of autoimmune and immunologic uh, diseases. And we certainly know that, that they have antiviral uh, properties, prevent viral replication. And for most people who have the flu, that kind of fever and muscle aches that you feel are really related, you know, it's, it, it's in a good way to interferon response. It's the body's natural response, and it does work in a variety of ways, and there are many different kinds of interferon. Um, and so it makes sense that interferon might be helpful with, with this virus. You know, widespread studies uh, should be done. Generally, it's a safe medication and certainly may be helpful as part of a cocktail, uh, perhaps including remdesivir or steroids. And, you know, we have yet to figure out sort of the ideal treatment early on to reduce the deaths and, uh, you know, identify that subset of patients. But I think it's very encouraging and very exciting. Uh, it's certainly not standard therapy at this point, but certainly studies should be done while we're waiting for vaccines and more definitive therapy. And I think it makes a lot of sense. I do want to say this argues for uh, having um, uh, an electronic record, a national universal healthcare record, because part of the problem is gathering all of this data, whether it's reporting data, you have all of these smaller systems, and it takes time for the government to gather the data. Had we had one universal healthcare system, you'd be able to get this data, you'd be able to do studies more easily and really be more on top of the information. Obviously, there's some, you know, we have to be careful with security and so forth, but right. uh, that's a bit of a tangent. It's my plug for us thinking about a universal, you know, healthcare record, but certainly something like um, interferon really does have uh, potential, uh, but it has to be studied in this subset. We know it works in many viruses. How well will it work for, uh, for this virus, uh, SARS-CoV-2? Uh, we have to see. You know, one thing, Ian, I was thinking about uh, when we were talking about the, the rapid testing that I wanted to go back to, I read something, and, and I think we treat you as a little bit of a myth buster, uh, you, as we've <laughs> often is. said, you're, you're our go-to guy. I've I read a couple like of things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. no, um, yeah, yeah, you could wear like one of those berets. Um, I do. I have read a couple things that basically say, you know what, taking your temperature before you go to school or go into the office, like that's kind of. I mean, it, it works to an extent, but really isn't that great an indicator. What do you make of that? I agree completely. You know, a lot of what we do in life m makes us feel better, but doesn't really make a difference. Um, so certainly people could take Tylenol before they go to school, uh, or they may have a very low-grade temperature, or they – it is one test. It's, it is the easiest thing to do to squeeze a thermometer, you know, a, a remote thermometer at someone as they come in. And certainly if someone has a high fever – Look, you would you you don't want them coming in, but it certainly doesn't mean that someone who doesn't have a fever can't have the virus and and can't communicate it uh, with someone else. So it's sort of the floor, the very basic thing that you can do before people either go into a classroom or to an office building or get on an airplane uh, would be to check their temperature. And certainly, if they have a fever look, could they have tuberculosis? Could they have some other issue? Could they just have the common cold? Yes. 
So it's a very nonspecific, and it's helpful, but it certainly is not going to pick up everyone uh, who comes in. I think it makes people feel better, see we're doing something to screen, uh, to make it a safer environment, but it is certainly... Uh, it's one element, and I, I don't think too much weight should be put on it. But I do think it does. Like Jason, you said, didn't you at one point didn't feel well or something? You stayed home, or yeah, right. And I do think it makes like makes me think twice. Like totally, okay, wait, if I'm not feeling well, because I know there's that check whether or not it's it's great. It makes me think right. a little bit about what uh, you know, kind of. I think we're health. all more sensitive as yeah. to how we're feeling when we wake up every morning, just to think about what we're going to do that day, and maybe ultimately that is a it is a positive thing uh, that we can take from this. Ian Lesfader, always good to catch up with you. He is um, our myth buster. Always enjoy it. Our myth buster. Totally. Uh, I really uh, enjoy catching up with him. All right. He is associate clinical professor at NYU's Langone Medical Center. Thank you. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. The equality issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, a pairing with the Bloomberg Equality Summit. So we've been talking about a lot of things that have been that have really come to the fore, mm-hmm. uh, Carol, in these past few months, these dueling pandemics, we've often called them, we and others have called them. So let's talk about what's happening in one specific city. Susan Burfield is here with his projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg Business Week. She's on the phone. Also joining us, Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us from Massachusetts. Uh, Joel, Tee this up for us. This is a fascinating story. Yeah, and one that uh, Susan flagged to us uh, a, a few months ago now and just said, hey, this is one that we've got to find a way to do. And it makes so much sense in the quality issue. And this is a story about the city of Stockton, which uh, America has not been known for uh, basic income. Uh, that is a, uh, an idea that has been used a lot and, and ha- continues to be used uh, in 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 other international um, uh, countries, in particular, uh, Finland had a huge experiment with universal basic income. Um, Stockton has emerged as as the first place in decades that um, that is flirting with this in America, and it couldn't have come at a more relevant time because basically, as the program started. COVID hit. Uh, Susan, pick it up from there. What what has the city of Stockton learned about uh, free money experiments? Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me on. Um, the experiment in Stockton is um, unusual and a little bit different than, um, say, the experiment in Finland. Um, and it's what made it kind of particularly interesting to me and relevant to the issue. And that is, you know, the the um, design of the experiment and the attempt uh, is not to uh, focus on just the unemployed, as the experiment in Finland did, you know, as Andrew Yang during the presidential campaign did, you know, assuming people might lose their jobs from automation and are going to need a little extra help. This program is looking uh, very specifically at people um, who live in low-income neighborhoods, uh, who need, you know, what they call essentially a financial vaccine. Uh, they need something that makes them a little more resistant, um, a little more, uh, a little less vulnerable to all of the kinds of shocks um, that existed before the pandemic, and then especially uh, those that, that came because of the pandemic. 
I love this story. I know the magazine has talked about this before. Susan, um, we're not talking about welfare, though, right? It's different. Yeah. So this is the notion that, you know, people know um, what they need. And, you know, when they don't have a lot of money, what do they need? They need money. <laughs> and, and, yeah. they, and that they know how to spend it. So it's, it's a cash um, it's a cash dividend. You know, in this case, it's given out every month. Um, it was it was five hundred dollars. Um, the program was meant to end uh, in July, and because of the pandemic, uh, the mayor and others found additional funding to continue it through January. So it'll be for almost two years. About one hundred twenty-five people have received an extra five hundred dollars every month, and that's in addition to whatever other benefits they may be receiving. Um, and it's, you know, not meant to replace those, uh, but to give people flexibility. And, and Susan, why Stockton? Why was that the place that uh, became sort of the, the, the Petri dish for, for this particular experiment? Now, Stockton's interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, it is in some ways um, a typical American city, you know, in that um, it was falling behind in some ways. Um, it is atypical in that it's very diverse, I mean, among the most diverse cities in America. Um, but with that has come, you know, inequality. Uh, there's a pretty high poverty rate. Uh, Stockton was known uh, as being one of the early epicenters of the housing crisis in 2008. It was the first major city to declare bankruptcy before Detroit. Uh, and so, you know, it was, um, it had kind of come in and out of the national attention. Uh, more recently, in 2016, it elected a very young um, black mayor who is a very uh, effective advocate for the city and brought this program to Stockton and, and is its biggest champion. Yeah, and we should point out that Mayor Michael Subs, he is, has been supported uh, by Michael Bloomberg. He graduated from a Harvard mayoral training program back in 2018, uh, Mayor Stubbs did, and also uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies has donated to a Stockton education reform group. Just want to put that uh, out there. So, Susan, as other cities have seen what's been going on, is this something, especially you mentioned this earlier, that Andrew Yang, uh, the presidential candidate, had sort of put out this idea. Does this have the potential to catch on? Yeah, so uh, just um, just this summer, Mayor Tubbs announced a coalition of other mayors, uh, there's 25 now, who are um, willing and interested in advocating for some kind of policy like this at the state and federal level, and maybe even more important, um, are committed to raising the money to uh, put in place experiments in their own cities. Uh, and, you know, what we could say about that is that uh, it, I think in part, um, you know, Stockton's experiment has shown so far, uh, it's still underway, obviously, you know, that people are uh, happier, that they're mm -hmm. less stressed, yeah. you know, and that they feel like they can make better decisions for themselves and their families with this money. So I think during a pandemic, you know, alongside uh, civil unrest and you know, protests against racism, that this is a policy that more mayors, at least, are considering and thinking are worthwhile to try to fund. 
uh, and then you know we'll see what happens right. beyond that. <laughs> right. Well, and what's interesting is is it kind of gets these are people who are working; they have jobs. It's just they can barely make things you know, meet and provide for their families. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's interesting. And, and the virus has reminded us, and you write this in your story about how vulnerable many, many Americans are right. to a sudden shock and need some kind of assistance like this. All right, Susan, Susan, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Susan Burfield, she's Projects and Investigations reporter at Bloomberg Business Week on the phone from New York. Our thanks to Joel as well. Check out that equality issue. Yeah, it's a great story. It uh, definitely worth a read. And uh, part of, as you say, a big issue dedicated to equality, pairing nicely with our Equality Summit, which you've been hearing a lot about this week. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. In today's Business Week Economics, excited to have back with us. And really, it's a double dose for me because Danny Blanchflower was so gracious to join me and a few of our Bloomberg colleagues earlier today for a chat with Breakaway CEOs. He is Professor of Economics at Dartmouth College, former Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee member on the phone from Florida. Um, Danny, first of all, I know I've messaged you, but thank you, thank you, because you really were a great force this morning. Um, we talked with a bunch of CEOs. You you know, you know, talked about unemployment, the, you know, the outlook for the economy. It's pretty grim in terms of how you see it. Um, I'm just curious if you had some takeaways uh, you know, from, from, what, from our discussion. Well, I think the big takeaway was that some people are doing pretty well, mm. and obviously um, b- particular businesses have managed to see their way through this, and obviously actions by the Fed have boosted asset prices. Obviously, we've had some sort of fallback over the last week or so, but that's one thing. The other worry is that, you know, the tail end of the labor market is in is in big trouble. I mean, we, one of the big things is if you look at the wage growth series, you see that it's grown at about 6% per annum. Makes no sense. Well, what it means is that the lower part of the wage distribution has dropped out. Uh, and the concern is, well, what happens going forward? Are they going to come back? Um, are the temporary furloughed firms going to survive? And are people going to change their long-run behavior? And I think the answer is that none of these things look especially good. And the predictions by the Fed that the unemployment rate next year is going to go to 55 and the year after that is likely to go to 4.6 is in, well, cloud cuckoo land. And I think the prospects of weakening labor markets um, are, are there. And the fact that the stimulus has been dragging on suggest that we're going to see something worse before we see something better. And so are they just being too optimistic or are they reading the data wrong? What, what, what's the sort of no. missing link here? Well, they've traditionally read the data wrong. They've re- they read it completely in my book. And they're working. I argued precisely about this. It said from 2015, they don't seem to have a clue about the labor market. It said in 2015 through 18 that the labor market was at full employment. I argued frequently that it clearly wasn't. Raised rates in error. And then we get eventually to Powell backtracking then saying, yeah, we got that wrong. Uh, we need to sort of adapt and worry about maximum employment. Um, I mean, in a sense, the thing they're having to do is to try and forecast forward. But it's really hard with these present data to work out exactly what's going on. And I think every time you look at it, you realize that the data are actually much worse and likely to get and worse again, how can you suddenly say they know that everything's going to be great in 2021? That assumes probably a $5 trillion fiscal stimulus mm. and probably finding an effective vaccine that everybody takes and the furloughed firms all come back and no firms die. Well, that's, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Right. 
it's like everything goes as we would hope it would go, and that's not likely. I do wonder, what are some of the discussions you're having with students at Dartmouth? I mean, you're not back on campus, and I know we talked about it earlier. Just remind us kind of how that's all going right now. Well, it's gone, it's gone pretty well. I mean, mm-hmm. we've been, I, I taught it remotely in the, in the, in the spring. I'm teaching remotely again. Um, there, there, it, it, it seems to be done pretty well. Dartmouth is very well resourced. I think I said to you one thing I noticed is that there's not much interaction between student and student, although maybe they just text each other and say, what do you want to say? I mean, I think that's, that's obviously what's happening. One of the benefits yeah. of what I teach is what I'm talking to you about. I get them to think about how the world is. I, I, I actually start most classes and I say, this class is about what the heck is going on, which is what Carol always you guys come on here, and that's what you do too. Uh, I think that, I mean, in a sense, yeah. they're, they're in economics and in the classes that I teach, they're incredibly interested, obviously, in what's going on and trying to trying to see your way through this complex situation we've never seen before. I mean, we've never seen anything like this. Don't kid ourselves. The UK saw a 20% drop in output in one quarter. We've never seen anything like that. I mean, in, in 2008 you saw output drop by about five percentage points in five quarters. So, so to think that we understand what's happening, we've, we've not seen things at this, this depth of drop, but I think we, we haven't any precedent for, what, for, for the speed that this has happened. So to say that these kids aren't interested, well, they're incredibly interested, and they're trying to understand what goes on, because they all are worried about getting jobs, and are they going to be able to come back to Dartmouth for the, for the spring and so on. Um, so these are exciting and interesting and scary times. Well, and speaking of jobs, and especially for the the college educated, which is you know, candidly, the vast majority of our listeners. I mean, what does the job market look like for for the next couple of years for people who you know do pursue an undergraduate, just sticking with undergraduate uh, education? Yeah, is yeah. it yeah, is yeah. it okay for them? Well, the answer is we know a few fundamental factors. We've worked a lot over the years about unemployment amongst the young. The one thing we know, probably of all things that you ask about college graduates, is it's, it's worse to graduate when the, when the unemployment rate is high. And so that means two things. It means that you basically enter lower down the job pyramid than you normally would. So imagine this pyramid of jobs, and you'd normally enter a place where college graduates enter where college graduates enter well they they actually end up entering lower and it takes a really really long time if ever to catch up that earning path so it's a really it it, it certainly is harmful to um graduate in the depths of a recession and and where we've never seen anything quite like this so obviously that that's a big concern and i think the bigger concern even than that are people who are graduate or even dropping out of high school yeah. What's going to happen to those kids? Where are they going to go? And I think at least, you know, the, the, the college graduates mostly will be okay, but it's the one, it's the 17-year-old who dropped out of a high school in Queens or in Alabama or, or, or in San Francisco, which we're really going to have to worry about. And, they, and in the 30s, they had to set up schemes to deal with them, the Civilian Conservation Corps yeah. right. was the, set up to deal with millions of people. And we're slow to the act. 
got to ask you about some research that you shared with Carol. She was nice enough to share with me, which is very close to hers and my heart. We totally. talk about sleep all the time. And, and what's interesting is you have given statistical and very well-done academic evidence to what I have seen in my co-host, which is... <laughs> Too little or too much is not what we need. We need just the right amount of sleep. Tell me what you found. Well, the, we have lots of evidence. I, I, I mean, I'm a person as a labor economist. I'm interested in unemployment, and I'm interested in the consequences of unemployment. Well, it turns out one of the big things that you find is that the unemployed um, have really bad sleep. And what I hadn't really understood is not only, well, they have disrupted sleep. Right. And that's the other thing. Even if you get enough hours, what we've seen in this great, uh, pandemic is people's disruption of sleep is a big deal. But what I found is that short sleep's really bad, and the unemployed disproportionately have short sleep, and that's one of the big things that's going on now. But one of the serious consequences, in a, in a way it looks, of not having a job, is that actually people sleep a really long time. They sleep too long, and that has, has bad consequences as well. But I think the evidence right now, is, and Carol's point worried about you know, during this during this pandemic, the evidence of all these academic papers being written is that people especially wake up in the night and they wake up and they worry. They worry yeah. about their family and their friends and the pandemic and how they're going to pay the bills and how they're going to how they're going to eat. So, one of, I think one of the things we're going to see is really more and more documented evidence uh, of the importance of sleep. And there's lots of medical journals all about it, but I don't think people really have connected together that. You know, an unemployment shock comes. That pro- uh, we're talking about that. This, this pandemic shock, the economy shuts down. Unemployment comes, and the, the the mechanism, if you like, to get to a a bad outcome, a bad health outcome, mental or physical, is through sleep. And I think what it says is, and Carol's the expert too, wasn't it? Which is that you know, ha- having decent sleep really matters. And I think that's one of the things it appears that's really taken a hit in the last six months. And well, unlikely I- to suddenly get better. Say again? And unlikely to suddenly right. get better. Which is if you think if you think there's a V shaped recovery, one right. of the things I would say to people is if does that make sense? Do you think that in the next six months suddenly all those issues are over? Carol's not gonna worry about her kids and her kids being in school and all of that stuff, it's all suddenly gonna go away. You must assume, I guess, that your sleep is gonna be even if the economy does recover strongly, your sleep's not gonna recover as quickly because we're all we're all anxious and depressed and lonely and all of that. Right. And that's not going away. And, well, so, and so the idea that you're going to get a V-shape, it doesn't make any sense. Well, and there's costs. I know you talk about healthcare costs, but you also talk about, you know, when people are in that position, they're less likely to get out there and look for a job. It just puts them in a bad way. Well, I think of the, think of the part of it, which particularly is if, if unemployed people sleep too long, what it means is they sleep too long, they miss the appointment. I mean, we've seen that a lot. In the UK, they've introduced all these sorts of measures about if you're unemployed, these are the benefits that you get, and you have to show up for a meeting. And one of the big things that happens is people don't show up to their meetings. Now, why? They lose their benefits. Some of it, I assume, is that they can't get up. I mean, that's, yeah. there's a good reason for it. I mean, you might say it's because they're lazy, whatever. But if the evidence is people are sleeping too long, it means that they can't get to their appointments. They probably can't show up for an interview. Mm. And even if they do get a job, they're not reliable because they don't come into work. Well, that's yeah. bad. It so, is interesting, too, to think about no, you know this ultimately being a, a, a health crisis of multifaceted proportion, Carol. Yeah. I mean, I do think we're all looking at things differently in terms of the costs and the impact. Um, and luckily, you know, some people, you know, 
have the means or the health care that can take care of all of this stuff or a lot of it. Not everybody's that way. So, Danny, I don't know. Leave us with some thoughts. Any optimism out there ahead of the weekend? Well, the thing I know in my happiness research is that there is a U-shape in happiness, which means that the low is in the mid-40s, but eventually it gets better. I mean, in general, economies do eventually bounce back. And if you're at the low point of the happiness function, what I can tell you is that you you can be like me, a little older and on the rising part of the happiness function, and and you get grandkids. And the great thing is is when when they... uh, when they have a dirty diaper, you could hand it to mom. Hi, <laughs> 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 sweetheart, it's great. Would you manage? Would you kind of manage this, please? I'm going fishing. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. That's the positive to think. All right. Well, we hope that we're we're on the uh, upside of the U before too long. And we always, as always, thank you for your time and especially generous to Bloomberg today, given the great conversation I know you had already earlier with uh, Carol Masser. Danny Blanchflower is professor of economics at Dartmouth College. We love catching up with him. His you better watch Jason. I might just make Danny my co-host. Listen, I would not be surprised. (laughs) I would not be surprised. You guys have great chemistry. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. It's time for the drive to the close. We're getting to the close of trading here for the week. And as Charlie said, getting very close to the end of this quarter. Isn't that crazy? September. bananas in a lot of ways. It was interesting to hear the hedge fund story where they were saying, hey, workers, don't come back till next July. Yeah. Like that is... Yeah, I know. I know. Time year. has started to become like sort of weirdly elastic, it feels like. Yeah. Let's check in with Sean Cruz, manager of trader strategy at TD Ameritrade. He joins us on the phone from Chicago. Sean, how are you? How are things out in Chicago? They're they're great so far. I had some uh, some pretty decent weather, which is always nice. You can at least maybe get out and, and walk around uh, and, and occasionally sit out in a patio if there's if you get the chance. Right. Is it safer in terms of virus and your concerns, or how do you how are you guys feeling that still? Uh, no, I think there's still a little bit of concern, and they actually have uh, taken some steps to to not necessarily put in restrictions, but they have gone to asking you whenever you are interacting with um, you know a, a server to put your mask back on while you're conversing, putting your order, things like that. So I, I think they are sort of trying to go in the direction and get ahead of things a little bit. Um, because there is this expectation, I'm sure we'll get this in a second, of the potential for a, a sort of a second round um, or second wave of COVID coming um, here in the U.S., which you've already started to see overseas. And so I think it is prudent to get ahead of it a little bit if we can. Your bears are looking pretty good. It's, we're not used to it. I always say <laughs> some, teams, some teams like to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. The, the Bears have been known to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. So yes. close wins, but we'll take them. 2-0 is 2-0. Yeah, well, I think you're playing my Falcons this weekend, and we have uh, had not a great start. So very vulnerable, to say the least. All right, so let's talk about what's going on in the markets, if we can. You know, one thing that we actually didn't talk about as much as we probably should have yesterday is Costco. And I do wonder what you make of it, because I think a lot of our listeners out there, big Costco fans, candidly, I certainly put myself in that in that category. But what was your read on what they said? Because it is sort of an interesting economic indicator, it feels like. Yeah. And so Costco, it's always interesting to, to look in the details of what Costco does. So you never really get too surprised by their revenue numbers because they put those out um, monthly. So we, we sort of knew what the three month revenue picture was going to look like for them. But it's always interesting to look and see um, foot traffic 
cart size, you maybe saw people making less trips, so foot traffic was down, but you saw the average cart size go up. Um, that's something that you would expect to see continue. Digital sales is actually um, fairly strong for Costco as well, but I think it reinforces when we try and, and paint this picture of what people are doing right now. People are, are maybe have kids at home because they're not going off to college or even um, if they have, you know, some kids that, that were millennials living in cities who now can work remote, decided to save, save the money on the rent and just move back home as well. So I think there's more people in some of these homes. So they are now going out um, and cooking at home um, a lot more as well. And that sort of favors companies like Costco, because if you have four or five mouths to feed, yeah. uh, it becomes pretty price efficient to go buy it all in bulk at Costco. Well, it's funny because we talked with the General Mills CEO this week, and he said specifically, it's not like you're not only feeding yourself breakfast, but now you're feeding yourself lunch, uh, you know, and listen, we work for a company that would often feed us all of that, <laughs> you know, but I mean, people are definitely cooking more and they need more food at home. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I could say, I typically always, you know, ate lunch out uh, in the city somewhere. We you know, would, would order in for dinner, go out for dinner. So uh, definitely, uh, I think it, even if you aren't doing it for the entire family, pretty much everyone across the board is having uh, to some extent or another prepare food at home. And so that favors quite a few different businesses. Amazon with grocery delivery is another uh, I think great example of of something that's shifted over the past couple of months. And I think that actually changes behaviors moving forward. People were a little scared about, am I comfortable ordering vegetables or something that can spoil mm-hmm. quickly online? And, and now they've, they've gotten comfortable with that. And I think the companies that are delivering that service have, have ironed out a lot of the wrinkles as well. So I think that is actually going to be an interesting shift moving forward that we shouldn't expect that pendulum to swing back entirely the other way, even in a, a post-COVID environment. Sean, when you think about the election, you know, less than 40 days out here, uh, we are talking about it all the time from a news perspective. And certainly the political headlines are running fast and, and furious. But I do wonder, both historically and everything is sort of thrown out the window, I feel like, historically these days. How do you think about the election as it bears down on us, uh, given that it is so close? So one thing that I think in the past in this election will be maybe you can have one one president is you know maybe back in uh, in Florida um, when there was the the whole uh, the hanging chat ordeal and and that took us some time um, to work through the court cases to really uh, you know officialize that the outcome at least for Florida. I think now the expectation is, you know, it's one thing when it's just Florida, it's just one state. We may have this across multiple states, and it may take some time to to get an idea of who the signed field deliver winner for the election is. So I think it's generally agreed upon across the board, across the political spectrum. We're not going to know who the winner is on Election Day or probably even the days after. So it'll be a little bit different than, okay, who won? I know who won. Now here's how I'm going to maybe react to, um, you know, what their policies are going to be. And there are two very different economic policies, especially from, from the tax point of view, mm. being put on the table here. So there's there's going to be some certainly some um, impacts on asset prices. That I think it, it dramatically one way or another, based off who the eventual winner ends up being here. The thing is, is I think there's going to be a significant amount of volatility. If we look at the volatility futures, they're sort of pointing to that as right. well um, for the volatility futures in that November time period. And I honestly think you're going to have 
think of the headlines we get, you know, around COVID that can sort of vaccinations that can drive us one way or another day to day. I think it's going to be like that, but even more amplified um, in the, the weeks after the election, based off of how the, the various counts and, and rulings are going to be going. I think that's going to be the big headline risk going into mm-hmm. November. And I think that's even why in days like today, where you have pretty broad-based strength, you're not seeing the VIX pull back too much. Right. I would expect on yeah. a day with this much broad-based rally. I mean, it's pretty much across the board on the heat map green. Right. The VIX is still above 26. So it's telling you they're, there's, they're having a nice day, but you should expect choppiness and swings like this, I would say, at least for the next two months or so. Yeah. Well, listen, it's going to be crazy between the election and if we start to see virus cases pick up, there's going to be so many things being thrown once again at investors. Um, Sean, thank you so much. Good chats. Sean Cruz, Manager of Trader Strategy at TD Ameritrade, on the phone from Chicago. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.